0: With our whole lives, you've called us to worship you Monday through Saturday as well as Sunday. You've called us to sing a new song to the Lord. And our psalms this morning were that concert to you. Take them and turn them into a glorious masterpiece that brings a smile to your face. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for participating in that. We're going to do it again next week, so continue reading. Uh, The Psalms that you should be reading are in the back of your bulletin. Uh, As Ginny said last week, uh, it's better to keep up than to catch up. If you're behind, don't worry about it. Just jump in with where we're reading today or tomorrow. And if you can't do all five chapters in a day, just pick one of them. And our goal is to get into the Psalms. And our goal, like when we're listening to a radio and that one verse sticks in our head, our goal is that one of those Psalms, will stick in our head. And that will be what's floating through as we walk amongst our day. Amen? Amen. You guys ever been summoned to jury duty? Just nod. Okay? Have You ever had to go to the courthouse and sit in the jury room with a couple of hundred other people? You ever made it through the selection process, had to sit in a jury, listen to the facts of a case, and determine whether or not somebody is guilty or not guilty? Wow, most of you. Okay, some of you know. Had you asked me that a a month ago, I would have said no to everything except, have you ever been summoned? But then May 23rd, I found myself sitting in the courtroom in the juror gathering room. I had to practice saying that slow because I couldn't get it out. The juror gathering room with a couple hundred other people. Funny thing is, I was also sitting in there with Ryan. I didn't know it until, like, the following month, Sunday something. Hey, did you make a case? Right. Now, uh, funny thing also, I was sitting in there with uh, Kareen Erdman. Is she here? No. Okay, good. Well, where? No? Yeah. Why? Well, hey, perfect opportunity then. We've been mispronouncing her name for years. Okay? It's not Kareen. It's Kareen. Like, I'm caring for someone. I asked her that. Okay? Kareen. So if I say it like that the rest of the message, don't think I'm saying it wrong. so that was the funny thing. A couple hundred jurors, all of Spokane, right? The greater 500,000 people, and in this specific jury pool, there was three from this church. That was the funny thing. The even funnier thing is, Kareem and I got picked to serve on the same jury, Even after they asked us, do you know anybody in the room? Yes, I'm a senior pastor. It means I have a lot of uh, strong ideals, and she's with me. (laughs) They picked us both. Ah, that was the funny thing, the even funnier thing. To me, the most humorous part about this is that as, as I was looking at the summer psalms back in April, God led me to Psalm 50 for this specific Sunday, And I had no idea why, until today. If you have never been summoned to a case this morning, I want to summon you. I'd like to invite you to watch, to witness a case that God brings in Psalm 50. Before we do that, I want to ask God's blessing on his time in the Word. Lord, this is your book to us. This is your heart to us. This is a glimpse of you for us to see. I pray that we would catch a glimpse of that heart this morning. God, may we catch it, and may we hear it, and may we sense it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so ladies and gentlemen, enjoy the trial of Psalm 50. Of course, we cannot begin without an official letter of summons, correct? Now, we find this letter of invite comes from, well, someone higher than the Spokane Municipal Court comes from a guy by the name of Asaph. Psalm 50, if you see the little fine print, it says written by Asaph or a psalm by Asaph. He was a choir leader, one of three of David's choir directors. Uh, He was a Levitical choir director, and he was the director of worship for Israel's corporate worship. So he starts this psalm like so in verse 1. The Lord, the Mighty One, is God and he has spoken. Now there's purpose in him starting this way, okay? Because as a choir director for all of Israel, you've got to figure that at any given time, he's going to break off his baton, he's going to gather people together, and he's going to say, let's sing. And there's going to be people around who may not know the words of the song. But they'll recognize different names for higher beings. And when he starts in Psalm 50, he starts with three different names of God. Starts with, in English, the Lord. The Lord. Now that is El in Hebrew, E-L. It's the traditional name for the Canaanite high God. Then he says the mighty one, which is Elohim. This is the common name for the God of the Hebrew Bible. And he finishes with the Lord, the mighty one is God. God is Yahweh. That is the personal name for the God of the Israelites. So this choir director stands up to direct the choir and he knows there's other people listening and he knows that one of those names is going to connect with anybody who's listening. So then he gives the summons. Then he gives the invite. Verse 50, The Lord of the Mighty One is God. He has spoken. He has summoned all of humanity from where the sun rises to where it sets. He summons. Now you guys just get to watch this. You get to witness it, okay? All humanity, everyone, From where the sun goes up to where the sun goes down, does that exclude anybody? No. It's everybody. So he says, come on. Come on, and we're going to witness this trial. I think it was about five Christmases back, I was summoned for jury duty. I think it was my first time I was ever summoned. And they send you this letter months in advance. And they tell you, okay, uh, two weeks before you send in this form, and and the Friday before you call in. I completely forgot spaced it. Like it, was, it was Christmas season, and I got, I got to where I was like, I think it was halfway through my service trial time, you know, the two weeks, and I'm like, oh my goodness, they're going to come knocking on my door. They're going to arrest me. They're going to send me to jail, right? Well, I called in to, apologetic, to apologize emphatically. I am so, so sorry. I completely forgot. Luckily, they had dismissed my uh, jury pool, but I had forgotten. The trial that God is calling us to witness, the trial that Asaph in the Psalms was calling the people to witness, they don't want to miss, and they won't forget, okay? So we've seen the glimpses, the initial glimpses of this trial judge with those three different names, and we've seen our summons. Next, we get to see the all rise for the honorable honorable judge so-and-so presiding. First six verses of Psalm 50. "'The Lord, the Mighty One, is God, and He has spoken. "'He has summoned all humanity "'from where the sun rises to where it sets. "'From Mount Zion, the perfection of beauty, "'God shines in glorious radiance. "'Our God approaches, and He is not silent. "'Fire devours everything in His way, "'and a great storm rages around Him. "'He calls on the heavens above and the earth below "'to witness the judgment of His people.'" Bring my faithful people to me, those who made a covenant with me by giving me sacrifices. Then let the heavens proclaim his justice. For God himself will be the judge. I told you that Kareen and I got on the trial together. And just like on TV, that's about the only thing that was like on TV. Anytime you came in and the judge was ready to enter, they'd make you stand. They'd have the all rise. And it was pretty cool the guy the guy it was a guy a judge came in in this long, flowing black robe. He had white silver hair that had proved he had been around the block a few times in life, and when he came, he had to you know take a few steps up to his desk that is just beautiful wood. the entire courtroom was wood, and everybody else sat on something lower than him. You could tell this guy had some power, some sway in the Spokane court districts, but I tell you what it is nothing, nothing compared to what we 're seeing here when we get the All rise, because God is entering. Do you catch his description? The Mighty One, God the Lord, one who speaks and summons the earth, one who shines from Zion, protection or perfection and beauty. He's not silent. He's a devouring fire. There is a tempest, a mighty storm that surrounds him. The heavens above and the earth below, he calls them. The heavens declare him as righteous. And in verse 4 and 6, he is called the judge. To my knowledge, no judge in the Spokane court system walks into that. Can you see how this is more than just all rise for the honorable judge so and so presiding? Did you catch the echoes in this description? Think back to your Bible stories growing up. Where else did you see God described like this? On top of Mount Sinai. Exodus chapter 19, verse 16 and 20. This is when God was first making covenant with His newly freed people. Listen to the description of God. On the morning of the third day, thunder roared and lightning flashed. A dense cloud came down on the mountain. There was a long, loud blast from a ram's horn, and all the people trembled. Moses led them out from camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. All of Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord had descended on it from the, uh, in the form of fire. Smoke billowed in the sky like smoke from a brick kiln, and the whole mountain shook violently. As the blast of the ram's horn grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God thundered his reply. Sounds a little bit like what we're seeing in Psalm 50, doesn't it? You know, it's actually fitting that we see this echo, that we hear this echo right here, as when we meet the defendant in the case, the idea of covenant is highlighted. Verse 5. God says, bring my faithful people to me, those who made a covenant with me by giving sacrifices. Bring my faithful people, faithful is the word chesed, we we looked at that word last week. Bring the people who made covenant with me, who made commitments to me, who made promises to me, who made vows to me, and who gave sacrifices to prove those vows. Bring them to me because they're on trial." See, it was on Mount Sinai that God gave the Israelites the original Ten Commandments. And it was from Mount Sinai that God and the people agreed to the covenant terms. Exodus 24, verse 3, Moses went down the mountain to the people and repeated all the instructions and regulations that the Lord had given him. All the people answered with one voice, We will do everything the Lord has commanded. We will do everything the Lord has commanded. And they confirmed that promise. They confirmed that covenant by sacrifices. Moses, in the Exodus account, if you kept reading in 24, 4 to 8, he went on to have altars made, sacrifices killed, blood sprinkled on the people. And again, the people said, we're going to obey all of this. We promise. I believe that Psalm 50, verse 5, is a direct reference from the judge in our case, God, to the defendants, directly referencing this Sinai covenant relationship between God and man. Tracking with me so far? So far, we've met the judge. We've seen who has been summoned, all humanity, as well as the earth, the skies, you know, the world that is watching. We've been introduced to the defendant, God's covenant people. And now we get into the, the body of the case. Now, writing for a different circumstance, the prophet Micah actually prepares us really, really well for the next steps. Micah chapter 6, verse 2, God says, and now, mountains, listen to the Lord's complaint. He has a case against his people, and he will bring charges against Israel. So back to uh, Psalm 50, verse 7, it says this, O my people, listen as I speak. Here are my charges against you, O Israel. I am God, your God. Listen, are you on the edge of your seats yet? Are you excited? i tell you what, when Karine and I were, made the final cut, though initially it was like, oh man, I gotta miss work. We couldn't wait to hear what we were gonna be like jurying on. We're right there, it's like, what's it gonna be? We get to this point right here, okay? So if you're not yet, scoop forward just a little bit onto the edge of your seat. When I'm not looking, you can scoop back, okay? Psalm chapter 50, verse seven to 13. Here is the beginning of the case that the judge brings against the people. Here, O my people, listen as I speak. Here are my charges against you, O Israel. I am God, your God. I have no complaint about your sacrifices or the burnt offerings you constantly offer. But uh, But I do not need the bulls from your barns or the goats from your pens. For the animals of the forest are mine. And I own the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird on the mountains, and all the animals of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for all the world is mine and everything in it. Do I eat the meat of bulls? Do I drink the blood of goats? God begins his charges against the covenant people with something he does not have a complaint against. It's not that the people had not been bringing sacrifices. They had been. Verse 8 tells us that. God says, I don't have any complaints about your sacrifices or the burnt offerings you constantly offer. Constantly, continually. The Hebrew word means to continue on without an eruption. So it's not that the people weren't bringing their sacrifices to God. But the psalmist infers, you can kind of read this into it, that the people thought that God needed those sacrifices. That he needed them in order to to survive. Right, You can kind of see that inference in the beginning of verse 9. God says, I do not need the bulls from your barns or the goats from your pens. I've got everything I already need, God says. Now, this is fun. Kylie, have you ever seen Finding Nemo? Do you remember that part where, I don't know, is it the pelicans or the seagulls and they're trying to eat Nemo off the dock and then they're, running, they're flying around saying, mine, 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 remember that? Okay? God does this right here. Okay? He says, all the cattle, it's mine. He says, all the animals of the forest, mine. He says, I know every bird in the air. It's mine. And all the animals that run in the fields, it's mine. And if I'm hungry, I'm not going to tell you, because all of this, mine. God is pointing out. Hey, these sacrifices, they're not for me. I don't drink the blood of bulls and I don't eat the meat of goats. It's as if God is laying out the fact that these sacrifices are not for his well-being, not for his survival. The whole sacrificial system was set up so that the people would recognize their need for God. New International Commentary on the the Old Testament says this, and I quote, Sacrifice is a necessary part of the human-God relationship, at least for humanity. Humanity needs a costly act of reparation, a costly act of repair, one in which life, which only God can give, is given back to the Creator in order to fully participate in a relationship with God. Unlike other gods in the ancient Near East, the God of Israel does not accept sacrifices to appease an incessant appetite, but to lead worshipers to a true understanding of the costliness of their relationship with God. In Psalm 50, in our case that we're looking at, God agrees that the sacrifices have been brought. But he's saying, look, this whole thing isn't for me, it's for you. It's so that you can be reminded of your need for me. He's saying, look, when you come to worship, which you're doing regularly, I can tell by all the sacrifices you're bringing, you may be present, but you're not here. God's saying, you may be present, but you're not here. And God's saying, I can see right through this. The charges from God, they begin with, Bringing the sacrifices, but I can tell your heart's not in it. So he brings more specific charges against them, starting in verse 16. But God says to the wicked, initially when I read this, I thought, who is that? Well, it's everybody that made covenant with God that is no longer obeying that covenant. So God says to the wicked, why bother reciting my decrees or pretending to obey my covenant? For you refuse my discipline, and you treat my words like trash. When you see thieves, you approve of them. When you spend, you spend your time with adulterers. Your mouth is filled with wickedness, and your tongue is full of lies. You sit around and slander your brother, your own mother's son. That's not a good list of crimes, is it? Not a good list of sins. The judge told us we could talk about our trial after it was done. My trial's now done, so I'm going to talk about it, okay? In the trial that Karina and I sat on, the prosecution had finished their, uh, their case, so they had rested. So the defense calls its first witness, which happens to be the accused, and he comes up to the stand, right, swears in, and after saying his name, after sharing what his name was, the, the defense attorney had the interesting tactic to begin with. He listed off crimes that the guy had been previously convicted of. The list was long. Actually, this guy was a nine-time admitted and convicted felon of crimes of dishonesty was the term they kept using. Okay? So stealing cars, uh, stealing people's identities, uh, being in possession of, of, of stolen property. Interesting tactic to start off with. Listed all nine of those. You could tell that nobody in the jury box was comfortable listening to all those. wasn't pretty to hear. And it couldn't have been pretty for the Israelites to hear the crimes that God was laying out of them. You guys have mindless recitation. Fake obedience. Refusing discipline. Disregarding God's words. Approving of thieves. Spending time with adulterers. Mouths filled with wickedness, tongues full of lies, and slanderers. Not a good list of crimes, is it? You notice how many of these tie directly back to that original covenant, the Ten Commandments? Thou shalt not steal, yet our accused approves of thieves. Thou shalt not commit adultery, yet who does our accused hang out with? Adulterers. Thou shalt not lie. Yet the accused has a mouthful of wickedness and a tongue full of lies. Thou shalt honor your mother and father, and yet the accused slanders the mother's son. Committing all these crimes, all the while bringing their offerings to God. Mindlessly reciting his decrees, pretending to obey his covenant. The sad thing is, this list isn't even the worst of their crimes. We find the worst in the beginning of verse 21 in the Bibles who have very literal translations. Okay, The English Standard Version reads this, verse 21, the first half. God says, these things you have done, and I have been silent. You thought that the I am was like yourself. By my silence, God says, you thought I was just like you. The unfortunate thing is we see that happen a lot today, still. You see somebody who is uh, passionate about justice, passionate about somebody who commits a crime being punished, and when they talk about God, if they're a follower of Christ, when they talk about God, the God they talk about always has a gavel in his hand, just like them. If you see somebody who is very big on God's mercy, very big on God's grace, when they describe God to others, they talk about a God who hugs trees, who coddles everyone and never holds anybody to account because he's full of grace and mercy, just like them. When you see people who have gone through tragedy in life, I say tragedy, they've had something done to them, victims of some sort. Oftentimes when they describe God, they focus on the Christ who hung on a cross, a victim of the system, the abusers and the accusers, victims just like them. Now each of these descriptions of God is true in their own right, but none in their entirety. Too often we try and make God fit our image. Thinking of the things we like and don't like, do and don't do, and then thinking, God, you're the exact same, right? Right? Come on now. God says to the people of Israel, you thought that by my silence I was just like you, but that is not right. You can't put God in the same box as us, as the Israelites. Just because he was quiet at the time doesn't mean he does those sort of things. Abby and I bought a house down in West Central about 10 years ago, and when we were scoping out the neighborhoods, we knocked on a couple of doors and asked the neighbors, hey, what's the neighborhood like? These people down there are really good. It's kind of quiet. It's a good pocket, but there's the pink house right across the street. It's being watched by the police. A lot of activity. Okay. So we moved in and several months passed and we didn't see necessarily any additional police monitoring. Now, by lack of seeing them there, did that mean they were involved in the crimes that were taking place? Oh, absolutely not, because I'll never forget the phone call I got from Abby. I was sitting in my office, and I get this phone call, and it's like, hey, 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 the pink house, the cops are there. Like, there's people running all over the place. They're going over fences. They're in neighbor's yard. They're in our yard. That guy has a gun. Abby, where are you? I'm on the front porch. This is awesome. Go inside. No. Just because the police were silent while we were there did not mean they were participating in the crimes. I'll probably tell that story again sometime, because there's more to it. God's silence with the people in Psalm 50 did not mean he was one of them. It didn't mean he approved of them, them. In fact, he just he kept going. Because in verse 3, it says God is not a God that's silent. So the second half of verse 21, okay, it started off, while you did this, I remained silent. You thought I was one of you. But now I rebuke you, listening, listing all my charges against you. God's saying, I'm no longer going to be silent. You've seen my list of charges in in verse uh, 8 through 13, and then in verses 16 through 22. No longer silent. There really is no need to call witnesses to the stand in this case, because God has already summoned the witnesses, heaven, earth, all humanity. They've seen the way that God's people had been acting. Plus, who's going to contradict God in God's courtroom, Right? So we're going to skip past any examination and cross-examination because it doesn't happen in our psalm. We move directly to, you could call it the sentence, if you want, where the judge says, you know what, here's what I want. Here's what I want. And in our passage, God wants, the judge wants four things. First thing, from his covenant people, God wants repentance. You see that in the beginning of verse 22. Repent, all of you who forget me. Repent. God takes repentance seriously. He doesn't want his people to forget him any longer. That's what he wanted. Okay? When Kareen and I's jury came back and we uh, found the guy guilty, uh, we thought, what's the sentence going to be? Well, the judge told us, well, the sentencing is on June, June 30th, six weeks away, so just look in the papers. Now, that's, unlike TV, it doesn't happen right off the bat. And we are a little bit bummed by that. We'll get a subscription to the spokesman and it all worked together, okay? God doesn't make us wait in our case. Verse 22, he says, This is the first thing I want. I want you to repent, all you who forget me, or I'll tear you apart. That's how the New Living reads. Or I will tear you apart and no one will help you. I told you, God takes repentance seriously. You know, the warm, fuzzy God that we we so often cling to, he's a judge also. That's the first thing, repentance. You better turn. Now, the second thing God wants, he wants thank offerings. I'm saying that like that intentionally. He wants thank offerings. He wanted thanksgiving as the people's sacrifice. The beginning of verse 23, but giving thanks is a sacrifice that truly honors me. Beginning of 14, make thankfulness your sacrifice to God. God says, don't bring the bulls and the goats and not mean it. I want you to come with the right heart. And here's what's cool in this. You do a word study on thank offerings in the Old Testament. And you'll come to realize that those type of offerings weren't commanded. They were voluntary. And they were offerings that were made to be eaten. Leviticus chapter 7, verse 12, you can just listen. If you present your peace offering as an expression of thanksgiving or a thank offering, the usual animal sacrifice must be accompanied by various kinds of bread made without yeast, thin thin cakes mixed with olive oil, wafers spread with oil, cakes made with choice flour with olive oil, You jump to chapter 22, verse 29 and 30. The idea of thank offerings continue. When you bring a thank offering to the Lord, sacrifice it properly so you will be accepted. Eat the entire sacrificial animal on the day it's presented. Don't leave any of it until the next morning. I am the Lord. Here's what's cool about thank offerings. They're to be eaten because it symbolized communion and fellowship with God. They're to be eaten because it symbolized communion and fellowship with God. In the Old Testament, frankly, in Scripture, anytime there's a meal, there's a sharing of meal, there's lounging around at somebody else's table, it means you're accepted by them. It means they want you there. You're welcomed. It means you want to be around them. You value them. You love them. Your heart was in the right place with them relationally. A meal does that. So in our psalm, God says, if you want to come before me, Come ready with a heart that desires to be with me, a heart that wants to commune with me in relationship. Don't come half-heartedly simply going through the motions. That's number two that God wants. Number three, after repentance, after a heart filled with thank offerings, meant to be offered in communing readiness with God, God wanted his people to keep their vows. Keep the promises you make. Verse 14, Make thankfulness, your sacrifice to God. Keep the vows you made to the most high. Verse 23, the, uh, the middle part of it. If you keep my path. Look, God says, if you're going to make a promise to me, just keep it. It's as simple as that or as hard as that. Don't tell God you're going to do something and then not do it. That's the third thing. Fourth thing, God's desire, the judge's desire in this case so that he doesn't have to carry out the tear-you-apart verdict. God says, after repentance, after a right heart, after keeping your word, call on me. When you're in trouble, call on me. I'll rescue you, and I'll get the glory. That's verse 15. Then call on me when you're in trouble. I will rescue you, and you will give me glory. In the jury that Kareen and I sat on, the defense's closing arguments um, spoke of the story of the boy who cried wolf. They said, Look, this, this guy has admitted to these nine crimes in the past. Today he's telling you he didn't do it. This time is different. For our people in Psalm 50, how is God going to know this time will be different? He's going to see it. They're going to to do the four things He's asking them to do. They're going to live that way. And if they do, they will once again be a covenant people, a chesed people. But if they don't, the judge is not going to hold back any fury. Now, knowing that, aren't you glad that you're not one of the ones on trial here? Aren't you glad that you're not the defendant sitting in the case? I am. I'm really glad. And aren't you glad that you just got to witness a trial without having to miss any work? Yeah. Here's the deal. Hopefully you know that every single one of us is one choice away, one decision away from sitting in that defendant chair. One choice. And I hope you also know I hope you can hear God saying every single one of us needs to put ourselves in the shoes of the people God was talking to in Psalm 50. God may be. In fact, I believe he's talking to us as well today. We may not be the people who actually stood physically on the the base of Mount Sinai when God thundered and when God lightninged and when God spoke. We may not have had the blood splattered on us. And to my knowledge, don't tell me if you're doing this, but to my knowledge, nobody's sacrificing bulls and goats to God to make themselves right with Him. Okay, We may not have been there, but most of us have still entered into covenant with God. Maybe, maybe it was when you got baptized Uh, and the pastor, the person doing the baptizing Asked you some questions and they asked you, Are are you going to commit to a lifetime of following Jesus? That's a covenant. Maybe it was when you became a member of the church and you got asked questions about, Will you faithfully commit and serve God and His people? That's a covenant. Maybe it was as simple as when you said, Jesus, I realize I'm broken and I need you, so from this day forward I am going to do my best to follow you. That's a covenant. So we have entered into covenant with God. God's faithful to us. We need to be faithful to Him in response to that covenant. He wants all of us all the time, including Sunday mornings. Passage like this deals with all seven days, but we could could very specifically talk about it on Sunday mornings. I mean, how often do we come here ready to sing the songs and our mind is elsewhere. How often do we recite the Lord's Prayer as a, as a group, and yet our mind is elsewhere? God talked about mindless recitation, right? The Holman Bible Commentary says this, Half-hearted, apathetic praise is an abomination to God. Such worthless worship flows from external ritual and empty routine and is devoid of right-heart attitudes. There's Sundays, I'm guilty of that. There's Mondays, Tuesdays, and Wednesdays, I'm guilty of that. So what do we do? We do the same things that God asked the people in Psalm 50 to do. We examine our lives and then we repent. Where's your heart been in worship? Okay, that's the first thing. We come thankful we bring a thank offering. We recognize God and coming thankful. We want to commune with you. We want to be in intimate relationship with you. We want to hear your heart. We want you to hear our heart. That's the second thing, okay? Third thing, keep your promises. Oh, man, don't don't tell God, God, if you, if you let me find a parking spot, I promise to read the Psalms, all five chapters a day, just like Pastor James says every day this next week. And don't say that and then not do it. Okay? In all seriousness, keep the bigger promises. If you told God you're going to seek to follow him your entire life, do that. It's hard. It takes daily decisions, but do that. So keep your promises. And fourth, call on him. God says, call on me. Because he'll rescue you. And then he will get the glory. That's what God wants. I meet with a group of guys. Uh, regularly. In fact, we meet online most of the time, five, six days a week. And we've been studying the prophet Isaiah since March. Um, The beginning of the prophet Isaiah has a verse that ties in very good with what we've been talking about. Just listen to it. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 11 and following. God says, "'What makes you think I want all your sacrifices?' He says, "I'm sick of your burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened cattle. I get no pleasure from the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to worship me, you—who asked you to parade through my courts with all your ceremony? Stop bringing me your meaningless gifts, the incense of your offerings. It disgusts me. When you lift up your hands in prayer, I will not look. Though you offer many prayers, I will not answer. Wash yourselves. Be clean." Get your sins out of my sight. Give up your evil ways. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Help the oppressed. Defend the cause of orphans. Fight for the rights of widows. Come now, let's settle this. God says, though your sins are like scarlet, I will make them as white as snow. If you ever try and do a study on the book of Isaiah, it's hard to get through. And if you were asked to summarize the book of Isaiah, it's even more difficult One of the guys in the group is Tim, okay? And he summarized Isaiah in a way that just lands smack dab in the middle of what we're talking about today. He says this, I think I would summarize Isaiah as saying that our God doesn't want our lip service or even our genuine devotion to him if it's vying for our attention with the idols in our life. What God does desire is is our genuine and exclusive devotion to Him to be called our God for us to be His people. I'm going to read that again just because Tim told me he's never been quoted before. Now he can say he's been quoted twice, okay? Listen to this, I think I would summarize Isaiah as saying that God doesn't want our lip service or even our genuine devotion to Him if it's vying for our attention with the other idols in our life. What God does desire is our genuine and exclusive devotion to Him, to be called our God and for us to be His people. Amen. Can the judge of the cosmos look at your life and say you are genuinely and exclusively devoted to Him? If not, what needs to change? I encourage you, put your own life on trial. Let's pray. God, this is a great reminder today that, uh, that you hold us to account, that you have standards that you want us to adhere to, This is a good reminder to us, Lord God, that you take promises seriously. So many years ago, you covenanted to a people group. You said, I will be your God and you will be my people. And that people said, yes, we'll do this. God, today, we're part of the group that has been grafted into that same line. And we're saying, yes, we want to be part of that covenant. For many of us, we've been part of that covenant for years and years and years. God, maybe today there are people who are wanting to make that step and say, yes, I want to promise today. So God, lay heavy on people's hearts. Encourage them to take those steps of faith. God, for people who are realizing they need to examine their life closely, don't let that thought out of their heart until they have done that whether it's this morning, whether it's this afternoon, whether it's this week, do not let that that thought leave them until they have come to the place where they can say, yes, God, as judge of the cosmos, I am genuinely and wholly devoted to you. We can only do this through the blood of Jesus, which he's already shed. We're thankful for that. May we cling to that. And God, we ask for your help. As judge, help us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.